The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Thank you again for being here this morning. Um, We are going to do a little bit of a review or a recap of where we've been quickly here. I know most of you have been along for the whole ride, so maybe this is unnecessary, but I know that there are times that we kind of get so deep into one subject that we forget where we've been. And so really quickly, I want to look at some of our previous lessons and what we've talked about. All the lessons are available online if you're interested, except for lesson two, which didn't record properly. And so we began with lesson one, a declaration of our faith that scripture is indeed the word of God. And that is because it is the word of God, perfect and authoritative, without error. Um, We believe we serve a God who inspires and preserves what he has inspired. And this entire class is not meant in any way, shape, or form to question or to tear down your faith in the word of God. It's completely the opposite. My goal is to build your faith in what's true. And that's what we want to do as we study God's word. We want to leave this class with a greater understanding of his word and a, more leaning on his word and trusting his word with our lives. So that's what we're hoping to accomplish in this whole thing. Lesson two discussed the canon of scripture, how we got the books of the Bible that we have, and how God revealed that just to his people, and that it was clear to the churches what was inspired by God, and that it was a, a council that simply recognized what all the churches had already seen to be true. That, that those 27 books of the New Testament were authoritative, and then we have the 39 books of the Old Testament um, that the Jews used as their inspired canon. Lesson three was the translation of the Bible into Latin by Jerome in the history of the church from the 3rd century to the 14th century, ending with the first English Bible translation by John Wycliffe. So we, we covered a, a great deal of space here, and the only goal of that was just to say for a thousand years, The Bible was in Latin. Essentially, it was used in Latin. And the Roman Catholic Church, we covered a little bit of their history, and we saw how eventually it came to a point where most people didn't speak Latin, didn't understand Latin, and yet the church was still using the Latin Bible because the priests were the ones that knew how to read it. And it was a way for them to keep the normal people under the hand of the church. Okay, Because if the only way to understand God's revealed word is to go through the church, then the church has power. And the church keeps its power. And so that was a a, a good way for them to do that. And um, John Wycliffe was the first of many men who had a very strong belief that the Bible should be in the vernacular of the common people. That that the common people should be able to pick up the word of God for themselves and go to it and learn about God and learn about salvation and learn about truth. That it shouldn't be just a select few that control the masses. Lesson four and five, we looked at early English Bible translations. Uh, We specifically focused on the life and the work of William Tyndale and his English New Testament, that he was the one that went back to the original after Erasmus had made what we now consider the received text or the precursor to the received text. He used that to create a wonderful, incredible translation of the New Testament, and he did much work in the Old Testament, though it wasn't ever completed before he was martyred um, for what he was trying to accomplish. We followed the chronological events when it, as it pertains to English Bible translations, 
Um, we saw the different years that each translation was created. We saw the people behind the translations and what they were trying to accomplish with them and why they felt a need for a new Bible translation. And what we hopefully saw during that class, um, more than anything else, is how each translator built off of the work of the previous translators. And so this was a process where every time, it wasn't that they were trying to do something new and cool and exciting. They were trying to build off of something good that was already there, and they were just building on that foundation. And that whole foundation climaxed with the King James Version of the Bible in 1611. So we spent Lesson 6, we looked at the impetus behind the King James Bible, why it was uh, translated in the first place, whose idea it was, the history of it, and um, then we looked at the process and the method of translation. This is how they broke up into groups. This is, this is what each group was responsible for. This is how they checked each other's work. And um, this is who these guys were. And so all of those things we covered in Lesson 6, there were seven years put into the production of the 1611 King James Bible by over 40, at least 47 um, men were involved in that work. And so just an incredible thing. Uh, 47 of the greatest scholars on the planet. And, and what's incredible is that if you look at those scholars, not one of them spoke less than four languages. I mean, they all spoke fluently Greek and Hebrew and Latin and English. Just brilliant linguists. And so they were, they were an incredible, incredible group. And to do something of that size nowadays would be next to impossible. It would be very difficult to take the 47 best scholars in the world and put them together and say, okay, this is, this is your task. So it is incredible what was accomplished there. The pop, we cover the popularity of the King James Bible that's been popular for 405 years now and running. Um, and we should understand that because of its popularity and because of its preeminence among Bible translations for so long, that there is going to be a great deal of information that pops up. There's going to be people on both sides of the King James issue where some people think that it's just the worst translation ever and it needs to be thrown out and we have all these better ones that should take its place. And other people think, no, the King James Bible is the only Bible translation that any person should ever use, that every other Bible translation is, is from the devil. And so, I mean, that's, there, there are two strong sides of this issue. And so what we got to understand as we look at this is where, where is the misinformation? How can we get some true information that will help us to understand how we ought to think about the King James Bible? And so because of the incredible number, and I'm telling you, if you Google something about the King James, it, it is a terrifying thing to do. I would not recommend it because you look at, at the King James and there's just every Christian who's ever lived seemed to have written a blog on why the King James is great or bad. And, and most of it is completely unscholarly. Most of it, you read it and you're like, that's not in any way, shape, or form true. And so it's incredible that this stuff, but what happens is one pastor says it from Arizona. And all of a sudden, somebody writes a blog about it. Does anybody know who I'm referring to? <laughs> you do. Okay, good. Um, and then somebody writes a blog about it. And then the, the information gets just disseminated among people without ever checking to see if any of this is actually based in historical fact, right? If any of it's true. And, and we want to know as God's people what's true, okay? One of the things that Anson Vandekamp taught me one of the first years that I was in Bible college, the first year I was in Bible college, in his class. And this was when he was probably 22 years old and he was not qualified to be doing what he was doing then. Um, he could do it now, well, but... Um, when, when he was that age teaching our class, he taught me that you never be afraid of the truth. 
Because why would we be afraid of truth? It's God's truth. And so we do everything we can to seek out the truth and search for the truth and not be afraid of it. And and what happens sometimes is we get truths built up, things that we believe are true in our minds. But then when when those things are attacked, we just assume that, that what's being attacked is God. But it's not. It's things that we've built up in our minds. Truth is God's and we should all be searching for that. So... What we're going to look at today is some misconceptions and myths that surround the King James Version. As we go through this, if you have questions, I encourage you to ask them. Okay, please do that. I think it helps with our discussion and I think it helps me remember some things that I meant to say that I didn't say. And so please ask questions as we go. Myth or misconception number one surrounding the King James Bible. The King James Version is the first Good translation of the Bible in English. This is a myth. It's a misconception. I hope we've seen that as we've gone through the history. That the Tyndale New Testament was an incredible translation for one man who was on the run to do what he did. Just an incredible accomplishment. We've seen that 95% of the King James Version is basically identical to the Geneva Bible. And so the Geneva Bible was a a wonderful translation done by godly men who sought to know the scriptures clearly. So there were many translations, even Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, the Bishop's Bible, all of those translations can be considered good translations of the Bible. They all went to the original text. And okay, so some of them were done by people that don't have the exact same theological stripe as us, but the goal of those people wasn't to always push all of their beliefs on the text. The goal of those people truly was to translate the Bible into, into accurate English. And so, yes, their theological views might, might slant things here or there inadvertently, but their goal was, it was positive, it was good. And so there was good Bible translations prior to that. And we saw last week that the King James preface to the reader. This is what the King James translators had to say about their translation. So we never thought from the beginning that that we should or that they should need to make a new translation, nor yet to make of a bad one a good one. So they didn't go back and do the, and scratch everything before it and make a brand new one. And they didn't take something that they considered a bad one to try and make it good. That wasn't their goal. He says, but to make a good one better or to make of many good ones one principal good one not justly to be accepted against, that hath been our endeavor, that our mark. And I read the King James preface to the reader this week. It's, it's long, it's like 30 pages. And, and almost the entire time, they're dealing with what they believe people are going to say to attack their translation. And so they're defending why they're translating and how they're translating. And it's, a, it's an interesting read. Um, and what, I, what you see from the read is that they had a, gr- a great desire to accurately translate the Bible into English, that they were doing their best, that they weren't trying to scrap something that was terrible from the past. They were just trying to give us the best translation of the Bible that they possibly could. And I think they succeeded in that goal. So the King James is not the first good translation, though I would say it is the greatest English Bible of all time. Okay. Myth or misconception number two, that King James translated it. I mean, hopefully at this point you know that that's not true, but this is something that a lot of people believe. King James authorized its translation, and he was one of two people that selected a translation committee 
composed of 47 of the greatest scholars of the day, but he did not himself have anything to do with the translation of it. Um, The scholars were primarily from Oxford and Cambridge University. The scholars were selected based on their knowledge of the Bible, of English, of Hebrew, of Greek, and of Latin. And so the the caliber of the men selected, you cannot say enough about. They were incredibly brilliant um, scholars. They were not chosen primarily based on their theological beliefs, which is interesting. Because one might expect that if King James is going to have his own translation of the Bible, he's going to pick people who agree with everything he believes. But what we actually see is he, he picked people based on their scholarly ability and not based on their theological beliefs. And so he picked people who were Puritans. Okay, they were Anglican Puritans, but they were Puritans. So they were from the Anglican Church, but they were Protestant-leaning. He picked people who were Roman Catholic-leaning. Um, yes, within the Anglican Church, all uh, 47 of these men were Anglican clergymen, but they were high church folks. And he picked a, a number of people who were um, Anglican loyalists, if you want to call them that. And so when he did his choosing, it was really well done. He chose men that ultimately produced a translation that was 95% the same as the Geneva Bible. And what's funny about that is that he was the one that called the Geneva Bible the worst of all bad English Bible translations. And so he did not succeed in his goal, um, but I think the goal of creating a great Bible translation was reached. Myth number three. King James was a godly man who sought a clear Bible translation for his people. Hey, that's, this is a myth. King James was not a super godly man. In fact, there's a lot of historical information that would lead us to believe he was a very immoral man. But he was a, a wise man. He was a political man. And so he sought a Bible translation that would bring peace to his kingdom by uniting folks of all different religious stripes. What he saw in his kingdom is that there was a great deal of fighting and a great deal of division among Protestants and among Anglicans and among Catholics. And he thought, if I can give them just one source to go to, and certainly all that he thought, we can't tell. We don't know all the reasons he said yes to the Bible translation. But we do know that it wasn't just because he just thought, oh man, I just want people to grow and to know the Bible more clearly in, in English. What he wanted was to have his kingdom unified. And this was one of the ways he did it. Myth number four, and we will spend a lot more time in this one. The King James Version was translated using only the received text. Okay, it was translated using only the received text. Now, this is important because a lot of people base their belief about the King James solely in the fact that it was translated from the received text. And so what we need to understand, first of all, is what is the received text? What is the Textus Receptus? If you ever heard Textus Receptus or TR, that's what it's referring to. A Catholic priest named Erasmus compiled one text of the original Hebrew and Greek using all the manuscripts at his disposal, including the Latin Vulgate in points. So he took everything he had, which is probably seven or eight or so manuscripts, and he he looked at them all together and he said, you know what, if, if I was to write a letter and then I was to hand the letter to five of you in this room and five of you were to copy the letter and then each of you were to hand the letter to Tara. So, so Tara does not have the original. Tara has five copies. Within the five copies, you might have slight differences. But if you have five copies, 
then you can say, okay, I have a difference here, but I have four here that agree. And so by doing this, this is like the first step into textual criticism. By doing this, you can determine what was in the original, even though you don't have the original, a picture of the original in front of you, right? And so that's what he did. He took what he had available to him and he said, okay, this is, these are all the places that agrees. This is what agrees most often. This is what is most likely. And so he would, he created a, a principal text or one Greek text using all of these eight or so manuscripts. He updated, that was in 1516. He updated his own work in 1519. A lot of the updates were uh, due to spelling errors, but some of it was because he found one more text. And so he had just one more piece of information. And he did it again in 1522. And he dedicated this Greek text and the Latin that he had translated with it um, to the Pope, to Pope Leo X. And then a man named, that we call Stephanus, his name was Robert Estienne, um, apparently that's Stephanus in English, and he updated Erasmus's work four times. So he took what Erasmus had done and four times updated it. And the most popular update is the third update in 1550. And this is what we call Stephanus' text. And that is the text that the King James translators had available to them to translate from. Stephanus also had about eight new Greek manuscripts available to him. So he was able to take what um, Luther had done and just tweak it in, in a few small places. I think there's only around 200 differences between uh, Luther's um, text and Stephanus' text. Okay? And then another man named Theodore Beza updated Stephanus' text in 1569. It's called Beza's text. And so the name received text was not applied specifically by any of these men. And it was not applied by anybody until 1633 when Bonaventure and uh, his nephew uh, published an, another update, another edition of the text. And this is what they said. I'm going to try and read it in Latin, but you'll find out that I don't speak Latin in a moment. Uh, he said, Textum ergo habis, habis, nunc ab omnibus receptum, in quo nihil imatum aut corruptum damas. Said what means in English, so you hold the text now received by all, which is corrupt in nothing. Okay, so the received text. You hold the received text that we can all see that's cropped in nothing. Well, King James was translated using Stephanus' text. They did not have what we now call the received text because in 1633 is when the, that final edition was, was published. But they had something that was almost identical to that. Okay, Luther's text was almost identical. Stephanus' text was almost identical. When we're saying that there's 200 differences, we're talking about a book that is like 800,000 words long. Yes. When you say Luther's text, do you mean Erasmus' text or Luther's text? I mean Erasmus' text. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I've said it a few times, haven't I? Yeah. Okay. Hey, listen, if I do that, feel free to just, hey, Dan. Luther did use Erasmus' text. He used the 1519 version, but it is Erasmus' text. So the answer is, first of all, they didn't use exactly what we call the received text, but they did have something that was very, very close to that. In a, in a book that is 800,000 words, 200 or so changes, even 1,000 changes is not a big deal because we're talking about just mostly 
updates in spelling or punctuation or correcting errors. Okay, we're talking about a few other places, a few other things um, that are a little bit more major, but they're overall, we're not making huge changes to the text. However, the answer could also be, was the Kingdom Version translated from Stephanus' text? And the answer would be no, it's not only Stephanus' text, because as we've seen, the King James translators were instructed to use the Bishop's Bible as their basis for their translation. They were given a copy of the Bishop's Bible, they were given a, a, a printout of it, and it had very wide margins, and they would just make notes on the Bishop's Bible. And it's just an amazing thing that what started as the Bishop's Bible ended as the Geneva Bible, or much closer to the Geneva Bible. But they weren't just given a Greek text and said, translate from this. What happened was they were given an English text, and they said, here's the Greek text. Compare what you see in the English text to the Greek and make changes when necessary. And here are all these other Coverdale's Bible and Matthew's Bible and the Great Bible and the Geneva Bible. And here's the Dewey Rames Bible. Use all of these other sources to help you. And so they were using the scholarly work of a hundred years to do their translating. They weren't just trying to, to reinvent the wheel. They were trying to, to better what was already great. So that's what they were doing. They did not use only the received text. The modern philosophy of Bible translation, what a lot of modern printers and modern publishers think, is that they want to find something that is, that is new and different. They want to have a, a, a version of the Bible where can, they can justify it. I have this new version, and the reason I have it is because I have this new translation methodology. Or I've, I've taken out all of the words that indicate just men. And I've made it gender non-specific, okay? Gender neutral. Well, great. Now you have a Bible that has something different and something that's not in the original text and something that, that, I mean, you've put in there. And so now yours is unique. But that wasn't the goal of these translators. That wasn't the, the ancient translation philosophy that they used. I think their philosophy was so much better that they wanted to use the wisdom and the knowledge of the, those that have gone before them in order to make theirs as, as good as possible. Um, Leland Riken has written a great deal about the Kingdom Bible. I highly recommend what he writes. Okay, I think he's, he's done a great job. He said, The modern syndrome of translators striving for originality and viewing others as competitors was foreign to the 16th century project of English Bible translations. Each of the translations built upon its predecessors and each contributed improvements to the ongoing process that climaxed in the King James Version. So the question we have to ask, the question that the modern translators have to ask is, if I have a translation that is already rendering something very well, why do I have to change it? And their answer today is because we can't have the exact same thing as another publisher because that's just plagiarism. And so they're not able to use what's already good there because they have this fear of plagiarizing what somebody's already done. King James translators, they didn't have that fear. They said, it's already great. We're not going to mess with it. Okay, this area right here, this is not as smooth or this is not as clear. Let's try and work on that. But that's, that's how they operate. And it was different than what is today. Uh, another literary scholar named John Livingston said that the authorized version represents a slow, almost impersonal evolution for it is in reality itself a revision resting upon earlier versions, and these in turn depending in varying degrees upon each other. 
Benson Bobrick said, in a cumulative way, all the virtues of the various translations which preceded it were gathered up in the King James Version. And one more man said, it forms a mosaic of all that was best in the work of preceding translators. Well, that gives you a, a good idea of what they were setting out to accomplish and what they did. Here's an example of how this process might have worked. Okay? If you take Matthew chapter 6, verse 34, the end of that verse, Tyndale wrote, For the day present hath ever enough of his own trouble. Coverdale wrote, Every day hath enough of his own travail. The great Bible wrote, Sufficient unto the day is the travail thereof. The Geneva Bible, The day hath enough with his own grief. And the King James says, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Okay, and so you're, you see how it's just being refined. And the message in each of those is the same, isn't it? I mean, the truth that's presented there is the same. We're not getting a completely different doctrine or truth from the previous. But what we're getting is just, just this gradual perfecting of how it's brought across in English. And that's what the translators did. Okay, myth number four. Does anybody have any questions about that, Justin? Uh, Erasmus, when he did his translation, where did his manuscripts Well, Erasmus was a, a very high-ranking Roman Catholic priest and scholar taught in universities. So he had access to the, the best Greek translations out there. And he, he even said that he spent a great deal of his own money in order to do this. So the, the, I guess what I would assume is that he would buy them whenever possible. He would just get a hold of them. And because of his position in the Roman Catholic Church, he would have a better ability to do that than, say, a Protestant at the time. Good question. Okay, any other questions? Okay, so we're... Yes? Where are the oldest copies of manuscripts right now in the British Museum, in the Vatican? Where I don't know. I don't know. Sorry. I have no idea. I know that the oldest manuscripts would be the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticus. I've, I know that like even those two aren't really fully complete. They're pretty complete, but they're not fully complete. Those are the manuscripts that the, the critical text is now based on, um, not the received text or the majority text. Well, maybe we'll, we'll get into that in a little bit. And some of those things will become more clear as we talk about more about sources. I was trying not to have one lesson where I threw everything about sources at you because that could get boring. <laughs> and if you're like, I'm already bored, then you're like, well, it'd be worse. <laughs> Not for Linda, though. I think Linda loves it. So, Yes, so that's a, that's a good question. I don't know the answer of where they are. Okay, myth number five. The King James translators believed they had created a perfect translation. And the word perfect there, I don't mean complete. They believed it was complete, but they didn't, they didn't believe it was an inerrant translation as far as their translation work. So the King James translators were brilliant and well-trained men who did a phenomenal job translating the Bible elegantly and accurately. But the original edition, what they published in the first place, contained 8,000 marginal notes, and these were explanations as to word choices and cross-references. So what they were doing is they would say, this is the word we chose here, but it could also be rendered this way. 
And in a few places, this is what the, the text says here, but this other Greek text says this, has this word instead. And so they were just, they're just trying to be as honest and as accurate as they could. And if you have ever been or, or known somebody that's involved in the work of translating, you know that it's as much an art as is a science. And they were trying to show where they had made a choice where a different choice could still be made. And so the, the point there is not that it, they, they did a bad job. They did an awesome job. But they didn't think of their work as inerrant, as though they were inspired by God. And we see that um, in the very same preface that I spoke about. In that preface, they were, they were trying to make it a, a good translation. Okay? They weren't saying everything before it was faulty and bad, and now that what they had done is perfect. They were just doing their best to make a good translation. William Riley said to claim, therefore, inerrancy in the translation for the King James Version, or even for the Revised Version, is to claim inerrancy for men who never professed it for themselves. Myth number six. The King James is translated word for word. King James translators maintained a literal translation method. This was the only translation method until, used until about 50 years ago. And a little transma- translation method, or a formal equivalent method, the goal is to, as much as possible, keep the words and the sentence structures as they are in the originals. So I'm going to do my best. I'm not going to read it and then try to determine what it means and then regurgitate to you in, in an English that I think you'll understand the best. That's not their method. That's more of a dynamic equivalent or even a paraphrase method. And we will talk more about those and what, what translations work with those today. But their goal was just to say, I want to make as clear as possible. Here's the Greek. Here's the English. I want this to be, when you look through the English, you as much as possible see what the Greek really was. So if you were to translate it backwards, you translate it as close as possible to Greek, the original Greek. However, this, a word-for-word translation method is virtually impossible. In the King James Bible, there is 180,000 words in the New Testament. In the Greek that they translated, that they used translating from, there's 138,000 words. So there's a difference of 42,000 words. It's just because if you've ever done translating or if you speak two languages, you know that when you take what's originally said, it always takes more words to try and say the same thing in a different language. It always does. That's why when you hear people speaking, you hear the first person speak and the translator always seems like they're speaking longer than the first person speaking. It's because they have to speak a little bit longer. Sometimes when we're preaching in Guatemala, um, you'll say a phrase Say, God loves you. And then Rudy will start off and he's just going at it for like five minutes. He's got uno, point uno, and then dos. And he's and it's like, Rudy, that, what? Like, I, no, I know that wasn't it. I don't know what you said, but I know that that was not what I said. And then afterwards, he'll say something like, oh man, the people thought that was a great sermon. I'm like, I didn't preach it. You know you preached that. <laughs> um, and that's, but... <laughs> Even when you're trying to be as clear as possible and you're not trying to correct the, the preacher in the process, um, you know that it does take more words. And so there are certainly more words. Now, one of the things that the kingdom translators that did that's very helpful is if they took a word that was completely not in the Greek, that was explanatory, they would put it in italics. 
So if you look at your Bible, you will see italicized words. You know that those words are just, they're not there, but they help us to understand the flow and, and understand what the meaning was better. And so they used a formal equivalent translation method, um, but it, it's impossible to do word for word. Number seven, we use the same version of the King James Bible that was translated in 1611. Okay, this is a myth. We don't use the same version of the translation in 1611. Um, there were many updates by printers, but there were some serious revisions in 1616, 1629, 1638, 1762, and finally in 1769. And during this time, there was words, spelling corrected, punctuation corrected. Um, the English language became more and more standardized. So uh, you know how in U.S. and then in Canada and then Britain, we have some words that are the same, but we spell a little bit differently? Well, that was just multiplied a hundredfold. And so as English has become more prominent and as technology has allowed us to interact more with people across the globe, it's become necessary to have a more standardized version of English. And so as English was becoming more and more standardized, printers would correct these and the originals would be corrected with new editions. And so that's why we have about 100,000 um, changes, but it is mostly just word updates. Um, and so we don't use the same version. If you look in your Bible and you see that you have 66 books and not 80 books, then you know you don't use the same version because the originals had the Apocrypha in them. So, so it was a printer's decision to leave the Apocrypha out. And eventually that became the standard thing to do, but that wasn't until like 17, after 1769 that that became more standard to do. The Apocrypha was, always, was, was often separated and put as an intertestamental, just like um, Luther and Geneva and some other more Protestant Bibles. And so we use the same version of the King James Bible in 1611. That, that isn't true. Ours has been very updated. And it is, it is somewhat difficult to read the original 1611. If you ever get a chance to, to look it up, you should. Um, it's it's kind of difficult to read. Number eight, the King James Bible is rarely used by Christians and churches today. Okay, this is a myth. The King James Bible is still widely read by Christians and used in churches today. Um, year after year, the King James Bible is the second best-selling English Bible translation, and the third best-selling English Bible translation is the New King James Version. So the only translation that outsells it is the New International Version, the NIV. Other than that, I mean, I know that the ESV is, is growing in popularity, and I think last year it was number four, the year before that it was number five but it's still behind the King James, the New King James Bible. So it is still purchased more than other Bible translations. And what's even more staggering is when you read statistics about who reads their Bibles, according to the Center for Study of Religion and American Culture at Indiana University and Purdue University in Indianapolis, they said when Americans reach for their Bibles, more than half of them pick up a King James or New King James version. So more than half are still reading, I think it's 45% are reading um, King James and 10% are reading New King James. That's, that's staggering. The 55% who read the King James or New King James easily outnumber the 19% who read the New International Version. And the percentages drop to single digits for all the rest of the competitors. So is the King James Bible used by Christians and churches today? Yes, it is. It's still fairly widely read and used 
and purchase. Myth number nine, because of the new textual sources, the King James Bible has been proven to be a poor translation of the Bible. Okay, This is a myth. Um, we're, again, not going to get too bogged down in textual sources this week, but just very briefly. Okay, I'm going to give you like a, a quick snapshot this week so that next week will make more sense, hopefully. You'll have a week to mull it over. Um, you have two theories on which textual sources are best to use. The one theory says you should use what's oldest. The second theory says you should use what's most it, what, what's most often found or what, what, what has been used throughout the centuries. You should use what we have the most of. So you should use what's old and thin or what's young and fat. <laughs> okay, if you remember it that way, that, that might be helpful. Um, you should use what we have a lot of, but we might not be able to go back as far. Or you should use what was dug up just recently and is super old. I mean, back to the second and the third century. And so a lot of people debate on which is best. One thing that's important to remember is that this debate isn't a debate where people are trying to use the Bible to prove their point. It's a debate where people are using logic to prove their point. Okay? Which means, I mean, we all understand that human logic is flawed. And I think if you were to, to take an honest assessment of the debate, you'd probably say, well, there are good points on either side. Okay? Now, you might lean one way or the other, as I do, but it, you're, it's not just this, this clear-cut, absolutely everything else was, was bad, and my position is clearly right, and the only reason you'd ever hold a different position is if you worship Satan. It's, it's not like that. So... To say that the, that the new manuscripts prove the King James to be a poor translation is to assume that one party is right in this argument that is not decided. In fact, there are more scholars that agree with the critical text. The critical text is, the, is using older manuscripts. So there are more scholars that say the oldest ones that we don't have very much of is best. And these are evangelical scholars, not liberal scholars. The more evangelical scholars that believe that the oldest texts are the best, but there are still a, a great number, enough um, scholars, evangelical scholars, who believe the majority text, which is the majority text is nearly identical to the received text. Okay, the received text would be a sampling of the majority text. It would fit into that category. That will make more sense later. And so... You can't say that as a myth or misconception already because you're assuming something that we can't prove to be true. The second part of it is that no matter what, the King James is not a poor translation. Even from one text to the other text, um, most of the differences are minor. Most of the differences are spelling. We're we're talking like maybe 4% differences, and most of that 4% is just spelling differences. Now, there are a few major areas where there's like a group of eight verses or a group of seven verses or one verse here that's missing. So there are a few missing or added depending on what your perspective is. Um, so, so I'm not saying that, th- that these are completely inconsequential. You can't write them all off. Okay? Some of them, they matter. But we're not talking about an entirely different Bible that teaches entirely different things. Okay? Almost all evangelical scholars agree that there are no doctrines changed from one text to the other text. 
So that's, that's helpful to know. The truth is there in both. And finally, I would say that the King James is the greatest English translation of the Bible due to its literary excellence, its accuracy to the text, its method of translation, its philosophy of translation, and its use in the church for 400 years. Okay, it is a, I think it's, you could say with, even if you didn't think it was the best translation to use for today, you sh- I think you should still agree it's still the greatest. I think it's still, it's beautiful, and it was used, and it's, it's just a, an incredible um, literary masterpiece, and it's, it's good. Right? It's true. And so, uh, I think it's a great translation. It's been the benchmark for translation excellence since it was translated. Um, the New King, finally, the last myth, and then we'll, we'll be done. The New King James Version is translated from a different original text than the King James Version. Okay, a lot of people think the New King James Version should be thrown in the garbage because it is translated from the critical text which they believe to be uh, the wrong text to use. This just simply isn't true. It was translated from the received text just like the King James. They have the same foundation, the same basis. Um, the King James translators were simply using the original to update the King James, um, the language and the the. Um, sentence structure in a few places, but it was, it's not from a completely different manuscript, all right? And they use the same translation of philosophy as the King James translators. That's all I have to say this morning. Does anybody have any? No. Okay, so le- next week you have um, positions on the King James. Next week we'll get into some different positions on it, and then we'll get into a little bit more about um, textual sources, and then hopefully we'll start getting into the revised version and the um, American standard and, and some other versions next week. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye.